In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God, Amen. God willing, today we're going to continue studying in the book of Galatians. Um, last time we finished uh, chapter 2. And so far, does anyone have like a kind of a synopsis or summary of kind of what has been so far the purpose of the book and what St. Paul is focusing on? You don't need to become Jew Jewish to become Christian. And he was he was directing this toward the Galatians, who was a group of Gentiles, right? And why was he telling them this? Because the Judaizers have been influencing the Galatians. So there is a group of Jews called the Judaizers who believed that even as Christians, the Jews were supposed to continue to fulfill the fullness of the Old Testament law, including circumcision, including the observances of certain feasts and so on. And so they would go and they would spread this among the Gentiles and tell them that they were required to, um, to observe these things in, uh, in, in order for them to become Christian, which was in direct contradiction to what St. Paul was teaching. Okay? And this, of course, was an obstacle for them because unlike the Jews who were used to the idea of circumcision and the law of Moses because this is what they grew up with, this is what they already knew, for the Gentiles this was something completely foreign to them, completely new to them, and so it was a, a stumbling block for their faith. In order for them to become Christian, they had to first essentially become Jews. Okay, So um, the whole purpose that we've been discussing so far has been St. Paul focusing on um, you know, attacking this message of the Judaizers, defending his own apostleship, speaking about how he himself is a legitimate apostle so that they would listen to his message. Okay. In this chapter, um, there is uh, a focus on the law itself. Okay, the law that the Judaizers and um, you know, and, and and of course the Jews from the Old Testament um, focus on as being necessary for salvation, necessary to be among the people of God. Saint Paul turns his attention to the law and to essentially say, what is the purpose of the law? What is it that the law accomplishes? What was the purpose of the law in the Old Testament? What is the purpose of the law now? Um, and the idea of being justified. And how does justification come? Does justification come through the law or does it come through um, through faith? Um, think of the idea that like um, a criminal can be someone who is pardoned from his crime, like someone committed a crime and it's acknowledged and known that he is guilty of the crime, but he uh, he, he is pardoned, meaning that whatever consequences uh, he deserves or that he has been sentenced with as a result of the crime he committed, he does not have to fulfill that sentence. That is what pardoning is. Justification is something different than pardoning. Justification is not the same thing. Justification doesn't mean, you know what, well, we are committed all these sins and we are evil and we're deserving death, but God says you don't have to satisfy the, 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 the punishment or the consequence. Justification is to be declared just. Like justification is to become righteous, right? As though these things never occurred, okay? This is to become righteous, to put on the righteousness of Christ. And although we did commit sin, we have been given the righteousness that comes from Christ. So, so we're not denying the fact that the sins, we actually committed them. But this does not make us to be wicked. We are declared righteous because we put on Christ. And so St. Paul speaks about this principle of justification to distinguish between the salvation that comes through Christ and what the Judaizers were preaching in terms of the law. 
because there is no justification in the law. All the law is is a series of commandments, and you break those commandments, then you're a sinner. That's what the law is about, okay? But what Christ came is he didn't just come to give us a different law. He came to change the system completely, right? So it's not about trying to fulfill certain commandments, whether it be circumcision or otherwise. It is that we are receiving something above the law. We are receiving something the law could never give, which is to be declared just through the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. He says, O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you that you should not obey the truth before whose eyes Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed among you as crucified? This only I want to learn from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? Are you so foolish, having begun in the Spirit, are you now being made perfect by the flesh? Okay, so so St. Paul is reminding them. Remember, St. Paul, he went and established churches um, in these areas, in the area of Galatia. And so he knew the people, right? At a, at a point later on, he is writing the epistle to them after hearing kind of the influence that the Judaizers had. So he is reminding them. He's saying, when you believed, you know, at his own hand, like when, he, when, when you believed and you were baptized, Based on what were you saved? Were you saved because you were fulfilling the law? Was this the source of your salvation because you were, you were fulfilling the law? Or were you saved through um, the, the sacrifice that the Lord Jesus Christ, Christ made for you, right? Were you, were you saved through circumcision or were you saved through justification by faith, okay? So he's saying only the sacrifice of Christ can declare us to be just. We can have justification only through the sacrifice of, of Christ. And placing our trust in the law is foolishness. Okay? Christ came because the law was insufficient. You know, if, if, if the law was sufficient for salvation, then there would have been no need for Christ to come. Right? The reason Christ came is because the law was insufficient. The law could not save. Actually, all the law did was condemn. Because everyone, having known the law, unable to fulfill the law, are is now considered a transgressor of the law and would have condemnation because they are not able to fulfill the law of God. So the whole purpose of salvation, the solution of salvation, is that Christ comes and he rescues us from the requirements of the law. Not to say that the law of God was declared to be wrong. The law of God remains. The things that God asks us to do, like in terms of like the moral law, is the same, and the spiritual law, Right? But these external actions like circumcision and whatnot, these were never what was creating righteousness in people. These were symbols that were meant to instruct or point to something else, but they have no real sacramental power in themselves, and so thus there is no reason to continue to practice them. Right? As we said before, St. Paul was not trying to say that circumcision is a sin or that people should be circumcised. What he's saying is that circumcision has no spiritual value. It, it does not save, it does not, is not, it does not bring someone closer to God, it, is, it has no real spiritual value. It was symbolic, it has its use at the time that it was given, but it was a symbol of something that supersedes it now, which is, um, which is baptism, okay? So um, here now, the focus is on the justification of Christ and the faith, right? The faith. Because he's saying here, having begun in the spirit, are you now me being made perfect by the flesh? Like, you started out in a spiritual way, believing and having faith in Christ and the salvation that comes from Christ. 
Having begun this way with justification by faith, are you now abandoned that thought and that belief and now you're trying to be made perfect through circumcision? You're trying to be made perfect through observances of certain feast days that the Jews held, right? He's saying, no, you, 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 have, you have left behind the true essence of what Christianity is and, and kind of the, 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 the significance and the importance of it, of what makes it so special and so unique which is all focusing around Christ, and you have turned it into just following rules, right? If you just follow certain rules, then you have salvation. Otherwise, you do not. Have you suffered so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Therefore, he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you, does he do it by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? Right? Why is it that he says, have you suffered so many things in vain? Why, why does he say, have you suffered so many things in vain? What is he referring to? This is a question. Why would they suffer? Why why is he saying that the Galatians would suffer? Um, first, because they started on they're starting to be follow the teaching that he taught them, and be like, why would they circumcise themselves and actually physically suffer for no need if it's no longer required? Oh, so you're talking about like the physical suffering of the circumcision itself. That's what you're referring to. One, and then the second one would be like they're already. They got so far with him when he first established the churches. So why would they suffer and do all, like give up their way of life and kind of throw it all away and start following a different kind of teaching? So to become a Christian at this time, what would be the response of everybody else? Like if you when you become a Christian, what would happen? Persecution. Persecution. Right. So he's saying when you, when you declared yourself to be a believer, okay, and again the, the the believer the belief is a belief in Christ. You suffered like you suffered persecution because you um, you, you went against the Jews, and so you faced persecution at the hands of the Jews. So he's saying, why did you endure such persecution? Why did you why did you go through that? And if 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 you considered it to be in vain, because now you are saying that essentially what the Jews are practicing is fine. We're going to practice what the Jews practice, but we're going to also believe in Christ, right? So he's, he's making kind of this dis distinction between the two, okay? And then he's saying, he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you, does he do it by the works of the law? Meaning the miracles that are done, the work of the Spirit that's done, in what way is the Spirit working? You know, when the Holy Spirit is working in the church, is working in the believers, is this working through the observances of the law? Or is it working through faith in God and the work of God in the church, right? St. John Chrysostom, he says, Have you been vouchsafed, he says, so great a gift and achieved such wonders because you observe the law or because you adhere to faith plainly on account of faith, right? Like what was the difference in the church and the New Testament compared to what came before? Like for instance, if you let's, let's just focus on the apostles specifically. If you look at the life of the apostles in the Gospels, 
okay, during the time when they were still learning from Christ. What you see about them oftentimes is they're confused, they're selfish, they're maybe, uh, you know, vindictive, they care more about who's number one, and they argue with one another about that. Like, there are many examples in the Gospels where you see the way the apostles are behaving, and you identify that this is like an immature, like a spiritually immature behavior. But if you look at, from the book of Acts, what is it that the apostles did and how the apostles act, starting immediately from the Pentecost after they received the Holy Spirit and St. Peter went out and he gave a sermon and 3,000 people were converted, you see a very, very different spirit working in the apostles, right? And in really in the, in the church as a whole, because they are establishing the church. This work of the Holy Spirit in them, how did this come? Did this come because of their observance of the law? They were already observing the law before. You know, they were Jews. So they are, they, all the disciples, they were circumcised. They were already following all the Jewish laws, holding all the Jewish feasts. They were Jewish men, right? So, so there was nothing that changed from before the resurrection and after the re resurrection in terms of the observance of the law. What changed is the work of God in them, the work of the Holy Spirit in them. So he's, he's saying all these miracles, all these works, all the things that you are seeing of God working in the church, how is this coming about? Is it coming because we are really good at observing the law? or through the faith that we have in the work of God in the church. Just as Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Okay, so, so to kind of prove this point, St. Paul is speaking about the faith of Abraham, which was accounted as righteousness to him before the giving of the law. Why, why, is, that why is that important? Like when, like historically, when was Abraham compared to Moses? Before. Before, much before, right? So when did the law come? The law came with Moses, right? Moses the one who received the law, including the law of, 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 uh, of circumcision, all these laws, okay? So here, though, he's saying Abraham was, like, he believed God and it was accounted for him as righteousness prior to the rece receiving of the whole law. All of this law that came later, Abraham did not have the benefit of this law, and yet it was, it was accounted to him as, as a righteousness based on what? Based on his faith. Because he believed God, not because he practiced certain things, but because he believed God and trusted in God and obeyed him. Therefore know that only those who are of faith are sons of Abraham, and the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith preached the gospel to Abraham beforehand, saying, In you all nations shall be blessed. Okay, so who is it that are, are the sons? Because the, the term sons of Abraham was always used to refer to like the people of God. And the Jews, the Pharisees, were always considered themselves to be sons of Abraham. And therefore they are the ones given the special promises, the covenant. Like to them, God gives the covenant in their mind, the ethnic Jews, the people who are physically circumcised, okay? And so here St. Paul is saying it is not the, the, the Jewish people that are the ones who are the sons of Abraham, but all those who have faith, all those who believe. The believers are the sons of Abraham. And he's saying the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles, like I think last time someone was speaking about the salvation of the Gentiles, okay? It said what? That in Abraham, all the nations shall be blessed. Meaning the covenant that was given to Abraham 
even though for a time it was focusing on the Jews, right? But it was the ultimate like realization of this covenant was for the salvation of everyone, okay? So in that sense, Abraham is the father of the Christians, is the father's uh, father of the church, not just the father of the Jewish people, okay? And this came through faith in Abraham, faith in the God of Abraham, right? Not through the physical circumcision, okay, but through faith. So then those who are of faith are blessed with believing Abraham, okay? Anyone who is a son of Abraham, meaning the believers, they are benefiting from the covenant, okay? And is a son of God through faith, not through, like, inheritance, not through, like, the, the blood relationship, okay? St. Irenaeus, he says the following. He says, that our faith was prefigured in Abraham and that he was the patriarch of our faith, as it were, the prophet of it. The apostle has very fully taught when he says in the epistle to the Galatians, he declared that this man was not only the prophet of faith, but also the father of those who from among the Gentiles believe in Jesus Christ. So he's saying uh, Abraham is no longer just the father of the Jewish people, but he is the father of all believers. Okay, because his faith and ours are one and the same. We are the children of Abraham because of the similarity of our faith and the promise of inheritance. Okay. St. John Chrysostom, he also speaks about this. He says, if he who was before grace, referring to Abraham, was justified by faith, although plentiful in works, much more we. For what loss was it to him not being under the law? None, for his faith sufficed unto righteousness. He's saying even though Abraham did not receive the law, he did not practice the law, he did not know about the law, it was, it, he came before the law of Moses, and yet, the faith that he had was sufficient for his righteousness. It was sufficient for him to be considered righteous by God, not because he practiced any specific thing. Okay? And so that, that is kind of the, the emphasis here. Again, the purpose of the law was not to bring salvation. The purpose of the law, which is what, what, how the Jews twisted it. The Jews twisted it to thinking that this law, if we fulfill it, then we will have, like we will be perfect and we will have salvation and we are be better than all of the other nations on the earth because God gave us this law. And that's why they were so meticulous in the things that it is that they would try to practice, thinking that these things are actually like, like what are going to actually be like the source of salvation for them. I was watching this documentary, actually, and, and, and I, I can't remember the name of it. But evidently, and I don't know, maybe some of you have heard this, there are major cities... And I think Manhattan, Manhattan Island, the whole island, there is like this line or cable or something that goes around the entire island, which for, th for the Jews, because the Jews believed that on the Sabbath, for instance, you weren't allowed to travel outside your home or to carry with you certain things outside your home. So they s it started out by them creating like a kind of a boundary, like in a larger geographic area um, that they would consider to be home so that they could work and do things on the Sabbath within that area. And then it grew and grew over time, and even to modern day, to where like the entire island of Manhattan has this thing, this cord or something, <laughs> I don't know what it is, going all the way around the island. So essentially, if you're a Jewish person living in Manhattan, then you can go and, and go outside and, 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 and do some kind of work or go outside your home on the Sabbath, right? This mentality, Okay, that this is what is satisfying to God. This is what is pleasing to God. These kinds of rules and technicalities and strict observances 
are what God wants. Okay, this is the Jewish mindset. And this is what St. Paul did not want the Christians to, d- to apply. He didn't want them to look at Christianity in this way when he speaks about the difference between the letter of the law and the spirit of the law. God is focusing on the spirit of the law. Like, what is, what is, what is the source of salvation? Okay, what is it that is going to save us? Is it the technicalities of these kinds of rules? Is it the law of Moses, which was focused completely on external things? The laws that we apply in the church today, because obviously there's rules. I mean, uh, there's, there's rules. Like when we say, for instance, baptism is necessary for salvation. Now, this is a rule. But this is a rule that is based on the spirit of God working, meaning the spirit of God is working in the waters of baptism. It is a spiritual law. It is something that God has said is necessary for our our spirits. It's not just a ritualistic action that has no real salvific power. Okay? And that's why, you know, even when we look at the law of Moses, well, we don't discard 100% of the law. Like we were speaking, like, like for instance, the Ten Commandments. We still apply the Ten Commandments. We don't look and say, oh, you know what, those Ten Commandments, they were part of the law of Moses. We just, we don't apply them anymore because actually... Christ confirmed all of the Ten Commandments in his own preaching, not only confirmed them, but amplified them. He said, you know, you knew from before that committing adultery was a sin. But now I tell you that even looking lustfully is a sin. You knew before that murder was a sin. But now I tell you even having hatred towards someone is a sin. So he took the, 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 the spiritual law and he put it in its correct context, and he amplified it, and he made it known that it's, he's not focusing just on the external action. This is why someone might go their entire life never committing murder, and yet Christ would say, well, we have broken the commandment, do not murder, because it is according to the spirit. It's not according to the letter. We might have the spirit of murder. We might have the spirit of hatred, which Christ considers murder. We might have the spirit of adultery w- when, when we lust, right? So he took, instead of the, the, the externalities of the law, he focused on the internal aspects of the law. And this became the law of the New Testament. One last quote here from St. John Chrysostom. He says, as they made much of their descent from Abraham, speaking about the Jewish people, the Judaizers, the Pharisees, they, they, they boasted of their descent from Abraham and feared lest abandoning the law, they should be considered strangers to his kin. He's saying, they're saying, well, if we stop following the law, then how do we consider ourselves to be sons of Abraham anymore? Well, St. Paul's answer is, no, we are all still sons of Abraham. Even the Gentiles are sons of Abraham without circumcision. Paul removes this fear by turning their argument against themselves and proves that faith is especially concerned in connecting them with Abraham. So he's saying, you want to be a son of Abraham? Then you have the faith of Abraham, right? It's not about the circumcision. It is about having the faith in God the same as Abraham had. This is what makes you the sons and daughters of Abraham. For as many as are of the works of the law are under the curse, For it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not continue in all the things which are written in the book of the law to do them. This is from Deuteronomy 27, 26. He's saying essentially anyone, according to the law, who is unable to fulfill 100% of the law is cursed. So St. Paul is saying, if if you are unable to fulfill 100% of the law, then you are cursed. So why do you look to the law for salvation? Like, why do you look to the law as though fulfilling of the law is the solution? 
right, to our, to our problem. We cannot fulfill the law. It's impossible for us to fulfill the law. But that no one is justified by the law and the sight of God is evident. For the just shall live by faith, yet the law is not a faith, but the man who does them shall live by them. Okay, the law is not about faith. The law is about certain external requirements, certain things that are necessary for us to do. It is not about faith. It is not trusting in God's mercy for our salvation. It's trusting in our own work for salvation. It's trusting in my own ability to do certain actions that if I do them perfectly, then this will bring salvation. Okay? It is a salvation by works. This obviously is not what we believe. There is no way that any amount of work can save us because we are corrupted. Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree, that the blessing of Abraham might come upon the Gentiles in Christ Jesus, that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. Okay, so this is what St. John Chrysostom says about this. He says, You see how he proves that we are under the curse who cleave to the law. Meaning, all those who cling to the law as a solution are still cursed. Cursed having the curse of the law. Because it is impossible to fulfill it. It is impossible to fulfill it. You know, there was an, a heresy in the early church called the Pelagian heresy or the Pelagian controversy by a man named Pelagius. And one of the things he was teaching was that you do not need the grace of God to fulfill God's commandments. That someone who is very, very, um, you know, strong-willed, and desires and works hard and is very careful can essentially fulfill the law of God and essentially lead a sinless life completely on their own effort. And this was condemned as a heresy. None of us can do so, right? Because by our very nature, we are fallen. By our very nature, we have some separation from God and we are susceptible to temptation and deception by the enemy. This is actually why we're in the condition that we're in to begin with. So the idea that we could choose to, to live sinlessly simply by our in, you know, strong, purposeful intention right, is completely false. And, I, and, and again, it, it goes against the idea of why is it that Christ had to be, had to ha came and was incarnate and, and sacrificed himself for us. Because it is not possible any other way. You have a question? There's a question on YouTube. Do we have to confess every time we seek hatred? Do we have to confess every time we have hatred? You seek hatred. That's yeah, it is. It is a sin. It is a sin like every other sin. So whenever we have hatred in our hearts for someone, we should confess. Yeah. Again, like Christ likened it to murder. We, 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 we look at external things and we can clearly identify that there's something wrong about it. Like anyone, like if, if you saw anyone who murdered someone, like that's a big deal. Like murder. You know, like people go to jail for that. You'd probably be afraid of a person who murdered another person, okay? But when it comes to hatred, it's it's inside, it's hidden, you know. It doesn't have external consequences in the world, you know, in terms of like someone like the police are gonna come and lock me up because I hate I hate someone. So we tend to think of the external sins as being more damaging, and they are more damaging in the sense that they have more external consequences for sure. But but from a spiritual perspective, we tend to think that these external sins are more spiritually damaging to us than the internal sins. But that's not what Christ said. 
Christ said that lust is just as spiritually damaging as adultery and hatred is just as spiritually damaging as murder, right? So from the perspective of our spiritual health, our relationship with God, our necessity to confess, all of the internal things are just as, uh, as important and damaging to us as the external. And this is why sometimes when people come for confession, they'll say something like, I can't think of anything to confess. Because yeah, I didn't kill anyone and I didn't like, you know, I, like I, did, I didn't do these big, big things that I imagine, you know, when it comes to sin. Like I didn't push in for anyone in front of a train. You know, I, I, didn't, I, I, didn't, I didn't physically commit adultery with a person. Um, these kinds of things, okay? But if you look inside yourself and you really examine yourself, we commit sins of our thoughts and our, our hearts every day. Many, many times, right? We have wrong intentions about things all the time. We have, you know, maybe blasphemous thoughts. We, you know, we are ungrateful. You know, even the scripture says when we know to do good, like the person who knows to do good and does not do it, to him it is sin. Like even when we refrain from doing good that we could have done, this is also considered sin. So if we are honest with ourselves, we find that we are sinners. Like that's why we call ourselves sinners. I should identify myself as I am sinning all the time. I am breaking the law all the time. I am not good at following the law, right? Like, and, and this is why we cannot use the law as a justification because I cannot follow the law. Who of us is able to follow, just like focus on the Ten Commandments, who is of us able to, to follow all the Ten Commandments even for one day without breaking anything, right? We are constantly bombarded with temptation and we are constantly falling all the time. And this is what makes the, the salvation that, that Christ offers us so important. This is why we call out to him, Lord, have mercy, Lord, have mercy, all the time because we are really seeking the mercy of God. We are really seeking him as a savior for people who are otherwise dead. This is what is the importance of salvation. This is why salvation is so important. We are not doing the things that we do to satisfy just some external arbitrary requirement. We are truly sinners and we are truly seeking life that comes from God and his forgiveness for us because we are, we are falling short. So he says what? Those who are, um, you see how he proves that they are under the curse who cleave to the law because it is impossible to fulfill it. Next, how, come, how comes faith how come faith to have this how come faith has this justifying power why why is it that we are justified by faith the law being too weak to lead man to righteousness an effectual remedy was provided in faith because we were unable to fulfill the law in its completion we are unable to be perfect so we are falling short from god's command the effectual remedy provided was faith which means uh, which is the means of rendering that impossible, which was, sorry, which, which is the means of rendering that possible, which was impossible by the law. Christ exchanged this curse for the other. Curse is everyone who hangs, who hanged on a tree. As then both he who hanged on a tree and he who transgresses the law is cursed. So he's saying we, because we are transgressors of the law, we are cursed. And also anyone who hangs on a tree, speaking about Christ and the humiliating death that he, he died, this is also a, a curse, okay? So he's saying just as we are cursed and he is cursed, 
okay? Um, and as it was necessary for him who is about to relieve us from a curse to be himself free from it, yet had to receive another instead of it. Therefore, Christ took upon him such another and thereby relieved us from the curse. So he's saying Christ had to be free from the curse in order to redeem us from our curse because he is sinless. So he is without sin. He does not, he has never broken the law. So he is not cursed by the law as we are cursed. And yet, he, in order for him to take a curse upon himself, the curse he took upon himself was not the curse of sin in the sense that he did not sin in order to be cursed by breaking the law. The curse he took on himself was the curse of hanging on a tree, the curse of his humiliation and his crucifixion. Okay? Therefore, Christ took upon him, su him such another and thereby relieved us from the curse. Christ took upon him not the curse of transgression, but the other curse in order to remove that of, uh, of others. For he had done no violence, neither was any deceit in his mouth. And as by dying he rescued from death those who were dying, so by taking upon himself the curse, he delivered them from it. Does that, does that make sense? Christ received the curse of, of, the, of the way that he died, that he was sinless. He took the curse on himself of his death so to free us from our own curse. Brethren, I speak in the manner of men. Though it is only a man's covenant, yet if it is confirmed, no one annuls or adds to it. Now to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. He does not say, and to seeds, as of many, but as of one, and to your seed, who is Christ. And this I say, that the law, which was 430 years later, cannot annul the covenant that was confirmed before by God and Christ, that it should make the promise of no effect. For if the inheritance is of the law, it is no longer of promise, but God gave it to Abraham by promise. So what, what was he saying? He's going back to the covenant that God made with Abraham. Okay? The covenant that God made with Abraham said that your descendants are going to be like the sand of the seashore and the stars of the sky, and essentially that he's going to have this huge nation of people who are going to be the children of God through Abraham. And all this time, Abraham, of course, not fully comprehending or understanding what that, that God is speaking about a spiritual uh, like, like in a spiritual sense, that these are his spiritual descendants, Abraham is thinking about his physical descendants. Okay, that his physical descendants are going to be, you know, like that. And of course, he, yeah, there were, there were many Jews, for sure. But what, what Christ was speaking about, what God was speaking about, was beyond just the, the nation of the Jews. He was speaking about all the spiritual inheritance of Abraham, that all the believers in the world that were eventually to come are going to see Abraham as their father because he is the one who received the covenant from God and that all this process of salvation came to fruition through the loins of Abraham, right? That the Messiah was born from the tribe of Judah who was of the descendants of Abraham, okay? So God made the covenant with Abraham 430 years before Moses, right? The, the God gave the law to Moses 430 years prior to that. This is what it's referring to here in verse 17. 430 years prior to that, God made the covenant with Abraham. But this covenant was fulfilled by Christ. And the law cannot annul the covenant, right? The law cannot change or cancel the covenant. 
The covenant was made long ago, and nothing of the law can change it or affect it. So we did not earn salvation through the law, but it was given to us freely because Christ fulfilled the law in himself. So again, Christ did not sin. He fulfilled the fullness of the law, but he took the curse of his death on himself to take away our curse of being transgressors against the law so that we might be freed and he would be condemned. So his curse that came on him was not a curse of transgression because he never sinned. It was the curse of his death. It was the curse of the way that he, he died. This was his curse. Okay. And so he's saying the, the, the law cannot change the covenant. The law that came through Moses can do nothing to change the covenant. And the covenant was accepted by faith, not through the law. So the fulfillment of the covenant is also through faith, not through the law. Again, what is the whole purpose of the law? We said this before. Why even does the law exist? The law exists for us as human beings, not so that we can attempt to be saved by it. Because if a person could fully fulfill the law in its completion and never having sinned, okay, but we cannot do that. We are unable to do that. The purpose of the law was not salvation. The purpose of the law was so that we would realize how far away from righteousness we are. That is the whole reason the law was given. So we know how far from righteousness we are. With the aim that when we know how far from righteousness we are, we seek God's mercy. You know, we seek, we seek God's mercy. We are waiting for this prophesied figure from the Old Testament who is to come and to, sal to save us and to redeem us from our sins. We are looking for him. We are looking and saying, you know what? No amount of burnt sacrifice is going to get me to heaven. No amount of circumcision, no amount of anything is going to make me to have salvation. The only way for us to have any hope of redemption is so that God would have mercy on us. And he promises this one who is to come, this Messiah who is to come, who through him will be salvation. So when he comes, we're excited to see him. Like we're, we're, we're joyful to see where like the people who lived, the Jewish people who lived at the time of the incarnation, they should have, when identifying that this was the man who actually fulfilled the prophecies, what should have been their response? They should have been like elated. Like finally, the one we have been looking for, the one we have been expecting, the one who is going to bring us the mercy of God, redeem us from our sins, has finally arrived and the time of salvation has come. But instead, what was the reaction? The reaction is, no, you're breaking the law. You're not living according to the fullness of the law, the way that we are. Why are you healing people on the Sabbath? Right? They saw him as someone who was a transgressor. They saw him as a transgressor. They saw him as one that they were envious of. Why is it that the people are going after him and they're not going after us? So they wanted to, to kill him. They hated him. Right? Instead of seeing him as, here is the Savior. Here is the one we have been waiting for. They believed they did not need him because they believed that salvation came through following the law and they believed that they followed the law perfectly, like the Pharisees. They believed that they followed the law perfectly. And because they were perfect in following the law, they didn't need any of this business. Why are you coming and talking about this? We don't need this. We have salvation through following the law. So this is exactly what St. Paul is trying to say. The Jewish mentality that the law brings salvation is false. So when you take a group of Gentile Christians who have faith, and who have believed in Christ and believe they have salvation of their sins and forgiveness of sins through him. And then you add to them and say, oh, and you also have to be circumcised. It's a huge step backward. It's like saying you're, you're, you've missed the point completely, right? The whole purpose of the, of the coming of Christ was because circumcision could not save. 
So you can't take like, like this redemptive work of Christ and add s- circumcision to it and say, okay, now you're good. What is, what is circumcision adding to the work of Christ? Now, people have been circumcised for hundreds of years, you know, and they didn't have salvation from that circumcision. What purpose then does the law serve? It was added because of transgressions. Till the seed, the seed is the Messiah, Savior, till the seed should come to whom the promise was made and it was appointed through angels by the hand of the mediator. Okay, so, so kind of like what I was just saying. So St. Paul, he's been speaking negatively about the law the whole time. So now I say, so what's the point? Why, why isn't the law exist? Why did the law come at all? What purpose does it serve? Okay, again, the, the function of the law is to define a person's legal standing before God, that we are, s- that we are sinners. Okay, we have broken this law, so we are sinners. And so it is incapable of bringing about righteousness or transforming our relationship with God because all it is is a set of rules. And a set of rules does not impart life. A set of rules does not like bring the like make it possible for us to obey. You know, like like if you if you if you know the speed limit. Let's say let's say you don't know the speed limit. Okay? But you're used to tra- to driving at like 90 miles per hour. And you can't stand driving any slower than that. Like you like driving really fast, 90 miles per hour. That's what you like to drive. And you didn't know the speed limit. So this whole time you're like, okay, I'm, everything's fine. Now you're, 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 you're breaking the commandment because it, the speed limit should not be 90 miles per hour, but you have no idea. Okay. Then they put up the sign. This is speed limit, 60 miles an hour. But because you're so used to driving fast, just putting the, the speed limit, 60 miles per hour, does not help you to drive slower. You still want to drive 90 miles per hour. That's what you're used to driving. But now you know that you're doing something wrong when you're doing it. That's kind of what the law did. Okay? The law did not change the people. The people are still people. The sinners are still sinners. But it made them know that they are sinners. It made them aware of their sin. Okay? It was added because of transgressions. The law tells us that we are in a state of disobedience, but it can do nothing to reconcile us with God again. It served the purpose until Christ, the seed, came to reveal to us the true meaning of the law and to bring salvation apart from the law. Okay, apart from the law. Because when Christ came, several things changed. Number one, these external type laws like circumcision and so on, they became irrelevant. That's one. Two, as far as the moral and the spiritual law, through the work of the Holy Spirit in us, God gives us the ability to obey, to fulfill. That is what sanctification is. That is what the renewing of the mind is. That's why, like, when we are struggling with sin, we say that we pray and we ask God to help us overcome sin. Why? Because we believe that through the work of grace in us, we can actually begin to fulfill the law. Okay, so that's the second thing. Power. The power of the Holy Spirit, right, that allows us to actually fulfill the commandments of God, not just relying on our own effort. The third thing we receive is true forgiveness. So that inevitably, when we fail to fulfill the law as we should, we ask God to forgive us, and he does. Right? So there was the, the, there was the, the fulfillment of the law, the canceling of the things that were just extern- externalities that didn't have any real spiritual meaning, like circumcision, 
it was again a symbol of baptism which does have a, a spiritual meaning there was power imbued in us to allow us to co- to fulfill the commandments of god and there was forgiveness when we are unable to f- f- fulfill the commandments of god all those things changed okay at the coming of christ now a mediator does not mediate for one only but god is one okay who who is this speaking about moses was a mediator because he is the one who received the law that governed the relationship between God and man. So this mediator here is not speaking about the mediation of Christ, right? This is a different topic. Here he's saying Moses, as the one who is, uh, the one who received the law from God, he is like a mediator in the sense that he received the law from God and he delivered it to us. And this law is the one who governs the relationship between God and man. Is the law then against the promises of God? Certainly not. For there, if there had been, for if there had been a law given, which could have given life, truly righteousness would have been seen by the law. Meaning, if the law was sufficient to give grace, if the law was sufficient for salvation, then we would have seen that the law would bring salvation. Like we would, we would be saved through the law, and we would be saved through the obedience, and we would be able to fulfill the law. You know, the the things that the people were asked to do in the law was impossible for them to do, right? Whereas the things that we as Christians are being asked to do are possible for us to do. Because in the end, even if I'm not able to fulfill some commandment of God and I sin, I'm very capable of asking God to forgive me, and he forgives. And the things that Christ asks us to do to achieve this forgiveness is not something that is beyond our ability. It is something within our ability. It's something that we can do, and we can do as much as we need, right, without limit. So the, the, the Old Testament law could not give life. But the scripture has confined all under sin that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. What does that mean? The scripture has confined all under sin. Meaning the scripture which tells us what is right and wrong is a condemnation because we, 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 we read the commandments of God, we read the word of God, and we realize that we are sinners. In that sense, it is confining us to sin because we, are, we realize that we are sinners through the reading of the word of God. Why? That the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given. Again, we are now looking, realizing our pathetic state. We are now looking to Jesus Christ as a savior. Right? We're not looking to him as just a historical figure. We're not looking to him just as a prophet. We're not looking to him as a teacher. We're not looking to him as something else other than he is God, and he is here for our salvation, and we need him. We need him. He is not a novelty. He is not just something to study. We need him because we have been imprisoned by sin, and he is the one who said, when the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. Right? This is the freedom that comes from Christ. Why is it that we have freedom in Christ? Why? Because he is the one breaking us free from the bonds of sin. We are in, we are in bondage and slavery to sin, and he sets us free from that bondage, not because necessarily we become perfect, right? Because we still s- suffer from, from temptation and we still sin. But he sets us free from the consequences, from the punishment, from the separation of God that would come from all of that sin. So we are set free from bondage because we are reconciled again with God the Father. We are able to have a relationship with God. We are imbued with the power of the Holy Spirit. We have forgiveness of sins when we fall. All that brings freedom. And we look forward to paradise. 
right? Instead of the people in the Old Testament looking forward to Sheol, okay, like Hades, we now look forward to paradise. But before faith came, we were kept under guard by the law, kept for the faith which would afterward be revealed. So before, before Christ came, before the idea of faith in the, in the salvation that came through Christ came, all there was was the law, right? And we were kept under guard by it, like we were imprisoned by it. The law was a source of bondage. Therefore, the law was our tutor to bring us to Christ that we might be justified by faith. But after faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor. What is a tutor? The law pointed us to Christ. Like we see all these examples in the law, like when, like, sim like when we speak about like the burnt offerings and sacrifices. Right? Christ, it was said about him like when St. John the Baptist was saying, Behold the Lamb of God who comes to take away the sins of the world. But why is he a lamb? He is a lamb because in the Old Testament, whenever you would sin, you would offer a lamb, an animal, as a sacrifice for the sake of forgiveness of sins. Now that was not a salvific act. That act was a symbolic act. People who offered sacrifice in the Old Testament didn't go to paradise. They were still condemned. But it was a symbolic act for forgiveness, pointing to the coming of Christ, who is the fulfillment as the true Lamb of God, who, who gives himself up for our salvation. So he is the one who truly saves because of his sacrifice. But humanity, in order for God to prepare us for that time, for us to understand what is happening, he said, okay, offer sacrifices. Offer sacrifices. Eventually you'll understand what that means. Offer sacrifices. Blood sacrifices. Okay? So the law was a tutor. The law trained us, prepared us to receive what was to come. That was the purpose. Okay? But after faith has come, we are no longer under the tutor. It's like you've graduated. Once you're graduated, you don't go back to the tutor again. Now you have the fulfillment. You have the fulfillment of everything that God has prepared from the beginning fulfilled in Christ, and so the focus is now on Christ and the faith in him. The focus is not on these external rules and actions from the Old Testament. For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ, through faith in Christ Jesus. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Okay, so he's making like no distinctive labels that we as human beings put on one another have any relevance. He's saying it doesn't matter your, your race it doesn't matter whether you're a slave, you're free, your gender. It doesn't matter where you live. It doesn't matter your ethnicity. Nothing. Nothing matters except that if you have put on Christ, okay, and we put on Christ in baptism, then we have become the children of God, okay? For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. We share with Christ this resurrection. Because he was cursed being on the tree. He was, this, he, it's like we are sharing with him this death that he is dying. And we are resurrected again with him again. So baptism is the sharing of the death and the resurrection of Christ. Because we cannot physically go on the cross and physically die with him on the cross. So we are spiritually participating in this act. 
in baptism. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Put on Christ means that we are benefiting from everything that Christ receives, we also receive. When he says that Christ will sit at the right hand of the throne of God, we also sit at the right hand of the throne of God. When Christ is resurrected, we are also resurrected. We become partakers of the divine nature just as Christ also has the divine nature. Everything that Christ receives as inheritance from God the Father, we receive as inheritance from God the Father. This is what it means to put on Christ. That when God the Father looks at us, he sees Christ. This is why in Christianity, salvation is not just live as a good person. It's not just be a good person. Just live and do good things. That is not Christianity. That is part of what we are called to do, but that is not the source of salvation. The source of salvation comes by putting on Christ. This is a spiritual act that cannot be emulated, copied, you know, imitated by any other means, any other human means. There is no amount of good works that I can do to produce this. There's no amount of serving the poor that I can do to put on Christ. It is through baptism that we put on Christ. This is why when we say baptism is necessary for salvation, this is not some arbitrary rule. This is not just some something we make up because we want to like make the church exclusive. It says, no, not everyone can come and take communion. No, you, you, you have to do this act. No, this is what Christ said. Baptism in Christ, we put on Christ. This is, this is necessary for justification. There is no justification apart from baptism in Christ because only Christ brings justification. Not fulfillment of the law, not being a nice person, not helping other people in need. Those things do not bring salvation. Okay? If you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's seed. So for us to be the children of Abraham, for us to benefit from the covenant that God made with Abraham, then we have to be Christ's. And how are we Christ's? We are Christ through baptism. And we are heirs of the promise. We are co-heirs. We are co-heirs with Christ because Christ is the son of God. So he, as a son, he is an heir. He receives glory from God. Okay? We are co-heirs. We become the adopted sons of God. Okay? I think this is actually here. Now I say that the heir, as long as he is a child, does not differ at all from a slave, though he is master of all, but is under the guardians and stewards until the time appointed by the father. Even so, we, when we were children, we were in bondage under the elements of the world. Okay, what is he saying? Like, let's say you have a king, okay? And this king has a young prince, very young child. He's not in an age where he can inherit his kingdom yet, right? It belongs to him. It belongs to him. But he cannot inherit it yet. He has some kind of guardian or steward that is, like, taking care of him, making decisions on his behalf until the time comes when this prince is of age and he then is able to fully inherit the kingdom and make benefit of all of his inheritance, okay? So he's saying the heir, as long as he is child, has no, no benefit, has no benefit of, of, of sonship, right? Has no benefit of inheritance as long as he is a child. Though he is master of all, like he, t he, he owns, like he is the inheritor, so he's the one who's going to be the king. He is the master of all. But as a child, he, he does not have anything yet. So there's no difference between him and any other person who, who is not even of the family of the king. Okay? But he is under guardians and stewards until the time appointed. 
Even so, we, when we were children, were in bondage under the elements of the world. So we, before Christ, before baptism, even though we were the creation of God, and even though all of this God wanted us to have, we did not yet have access to any of it. Right? So we were, in a sense, these spiritually, like, children that had not yet reached the age where we could benefit from the inheritance. Okay? This is the description of the Old Testament. This is what the Old Testament is. All people in the Old Testament, even though they are the creation of God and God wants them to inherit salvation, but they were not yet at a place where they were able to receive it. But when the fullness of the time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, that they might receive the adoption as sons. So when the time came, this is the time of Christ, okay, that we were to be made fully sons and daughters of God and receive the inheritance in full, okay, we were not the sons by nature, okay, because God had one son, the Logos, the second person of the Trinity. This is the son of God. It is to him that all the inheritance comes. It is to him that all the promises are made. He is the one to inherit everything because we were not yet sons. So through baptism and through all of this work of salvation that Christ is doing, what happens? We receive adoption. So it is like the king comes to people who are not of his family and he says, I'm adopting you so that you can become princes and princesses. Okay, and you're going to live in my palace and you're going to become my children and everything that my natural son is going to inherit from me, you also will inherit. Okay, this is what it means for us to be co-heirs with Christ. Okay, a co-heir. He is the natural heir. He is the original heir. We become heirs with him so that every benefit that Christ has, we also have. There's nothing here about earning this, right? Like, there's nothing here about we did something to earn this. This is completely because of God's love. Like, even when you ask the question, God, why are you giving us all these things that we don't deserve? There's no answer apart from the love of God. What is it that we did? This is why, like, sometimes when we feel, like, entitled to things and when you really think about it, what is it that we are entitled to? We're entitled to nothing. Like, we are entitled to condemnation. This is entitlement. Everything good that we receive, everything good that the church offers us, is given as a free gift by God to us, not because we deserve. Again, like, imagine you have, like, these poor, you know, like, homeless people living on the street, and the king comes, and he says, come, I want you to be my sons and daughters. And they, he brings them into his, his throne room and he puts on them like this, you know, royal clothing. And he says, okay, now you will receive everything for the rest of your life. You'll receive everything as though you were born a prince or a princess. Like there's no explanation for that. There's no benefit to the king. He doesn't gain anything from this, right? But this is what God is doing for us. And because you are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into your hearts crying out, Abba, Father. Therefore, you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir of God through Christ. The reason we can call God Father and say, Abba, Father, 
is because he has adopted us as sons. We take for granted, sometimes we can say, we can call God Father, okay? Or, or we sometimes we just kind of generalize it and we say, oh yeah, all, of, all people are the children of God. All people are not the children of God, okay? And the only reason we can call God Father is because of all of this work, his salvation that he, that he did. If you notice in the liturgy, from the time that we start the divine liturgy, okay, like the prayer of reconciliation, all the way up until after the fraction, like right at the, at the end of the fraction, we don't say our father a single time, if you've noticed that. You know, probably like in Matins, for instance, we say our father, we say our father in other times. From the time that the liturgy starts in the prayer of reconciliation, all the way up until the fraction, we don't say our father, and immediately after the fraction, what do we say? We say our father. Because it is at that time, after the fraction, which is, which is representing the sacrifice of Christ, the crucifixion of Christ, like this is where we can say our Father. But then, indeed, when you did not know God, you served those which by nature are not gods. But then indeed, when you did not know God, you served those which by nature are not gods. So in our separation from God, in the time before we realized all of this, before we realized how much God cared for us, we were separated from him. And in the time when we were separated from him, what did we do? We did not worship God. We worshiped everything else. We worshipped idols, okay? We served those which by nature are not gods. So during the time where we were kind of in this state of separation from God, and yet God was still working to save us, right? This is like the story of Hosea. Do you know the, the prophet, the minor prophet Hosea? He tells Hosea the prophet as a symbol of what the people of God did to him. He tells him to go and to marry a woman who is an adulteress, who will cheat on him, okay? And why did he do this? He did this because it was a representation of the people. It, it, it was representing what they did to him. And so all throughout the whole Old Testament, as God is trying to bring people to him, to save them, they continue to, to seek after like harlots, they continue to seek after other gods. So this was kind of like shows the, the, the magnitude and the depth that God had for his people that we never treated him well. Like we never treated him the right way. And yet he continued to pursue all the way up until the time actually of sending his son. And even sending his son, he was rejected. And yet God used this rejection, right? He used this rejection actually for our own salvation. But now after you have known God, or rather are known by God, how is it that you turn again to the weak and beggarly elements to which you desire again to be in bondage? So he brings it all back again now to this idea. God did all of this for you. You deserved none of it. And no amount of good works was ever able to save. 
And you, it's like essentially you are mocking and insulting. What is it that Christ did for you by thinking that in addition to what he did, you also have to follow the law? Like you are minimizing and making insignificant the thing that he did for you because you think that it is by your own work that you are able to attain salvation. And when you think about it this way, <coughs> again, like, someone might look at this and say, okay, what's the big deal? People who are circumcised, not circumcised, what is the big deal? The, again, the big deal is this. The big deal is that you are substituting the work of man for the work of God. And salvation is not about the work of man, okay? Salvation is about the work of God. Yes, we have to do our part in accepting what he has done and responding to what he has done. But we cannot initiate salvation. We, we, we can, we, there was nothing we could have done to make ourselves to be saved through any kind of good work. So I, I want to go back again to this principle. Christianity is not just a bunch of people doing good work. Okay? It is, it is breaking of bondage that we are cannot break ourselves. That Christ is only the one who can break. So he's saying, you want to be again in bondage? Like, like you want to go back to the way that things were, where you were ens enslaved to the law and there was nothing you could do to free yourself? Is this what you want? You observe days and months and seasons and years. I am afraid for you, lest I have labored for you in vain. Right? He's saying, I'm afraid for you. Right? You, you're, you, you, are, you are in danger now because instead of trusting by faith in the salvation that Christ gave you freely, you are now looking to fulfilling certain elements of the law and thinking that this is what will bring you salvation. This is what St. Athanasius of Alexandria, what he said. He said, the feast is not on account of the days, but for the Lord's sake, who then suffered for us. We celebrate it for our Passover, Christ is sacrifice. Here he's speaking about what? Why is it that we in the church celebrate days? Like we have certain feast days. Like we celebrate Easter, we celebrate Nativity, right? What is the difference between what we are doing and what he was complaining here about the Jews, about what they were doing? So he's saying, our feast, the feast, is not on account of the days, but for the Lord's sake. Like, we, we, are, not, we are not imagining that the celebration of the Feast of Nativity is what brings us salvation. Like, we don't, we're not thinking that the actual act of coming and, and celebrating the Nativity Feast is what brings salvation, or celebrating any of the feasts of the church, that is what brings salvation as like an external ritual. No, we know that uh, we are coming to celebrate it because we want to memorialize. We want to remember what is it that Christ has done for us, not because we think that that actual act in itself is the salvific act. So this is what St. Athanasius is saying. We don't, we, we, the feast is not on account of the days, but for the Lord's sake, who then suffered for us. We celebrate it for our Passover Christ is sacrificed. Even as Moses, when teaching Israel not to consider the feast as pertaining to the days, but to the Lord said, it is the Lord's Passover, right? We remember the action. We remember the salvation. And everything we do in the church is about remembering. This is what we are. We are remembering everything that happened in the past. We live in a very different era, you know? We live, we live in a different century, millennia, society, culture. And these things that truly did happen long ago, 
unless we remember them, right, then maybe we will completely just have no connection to what is it that Christ actually did. We have to remind ourselves of all of the actions that God has done. We have to remember his act of creation, that he created us. We have to remember the acts of salvation. We have to remember all the things that led up to, like all the prophecies, everything that led up to Christ. This is the story of salvation, that even though, yes, we are born, you know, in the 20th or 21st centuries, okay, but but life was going on before. Like, li we, we showed up on the scene very late from all these things that have been happening all along, and we can't just forget them, right? Because this is the foundation of what we believe and why we believe and why we live the way that we do based on what came before. <coughs> Brethren, I urge you to become like me, for I became like you. You have not injured me at all. So he's going to start now speaking about, you know, St. Paul became, because he's writing to the Gentiles, right? St. Paul became like the Gentiles in the sense that he left behind the Jewish law. He's left behind being a Pharisee. He gained freedom in Christ. So he's saying, I urge you to become like me. I am freed from the requirements of the law. Like, St. Paul is the Pharisee. St. Paul is the one who, if anyone is going to want to follow the law, it's St. Paul. These Gentiles, they have nothing to do with circumcision. They've never practiced it. They're, they're, they're thinking of this now only because they were taught by this Judaizer group that this was necessary for them. Okay, so he's saying, I want you to become like me, for I have become like you. I have become like a Gentile. So I want you to become like me and not following the law, not following this Jewish law. Um, this is a good stopping point. Um, so we're out of time. Any questions before we conclude? Okay, let's pray. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God, amen. We thank you, O Lord, for this day. And we thank you for every opportunity of salvation that you give us. We thank you, O God, because you are merciful and compassionate and patient. And even though, O Lord, we might seek after harlots and seek after sin and seek after all the things that are dark in this world that lead us away from you, you wait patiently, O Lord, for us to return. And when we do, O God, you offer us forgiveness and salvation. We thank you, O Lord, because you sent your Son for our salvation, for our forgiveness, for our transformation, so that we might, we might enjoy, enjoy eternity, O Lord, with you in paradise. We thank you, O God, for your goodness and for your mercy and love. We ask, O God, that you help us to experience this on a daily basis and to experience joy of the salvation that you have given us and not to be so focused on our problems, on the issues that we have in this world, on the annoyances, or to feel entitled, O God, that there is something that we require that you give us that you have not given. Because you, O Lord, have given us more than we can ask. You have given us more than we can imagine. We thank you, O God, for your mercy. And we ask, O Lord, that you would have mercy on our souls and forgive us our sins. Through the prayers of St. Mary, Archangel Michael, St. Paul, St. Mark, and all your saints, hear us as we pray. Thankfully, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us and lead us not to temptation but deliver us from the evil one. In Christ Jesus our Lord, for thine is the kingdom, power, and the glory forever and ever. Amen. The love of God the Father, the grace of the only begotten Son, our Lord God and Savior Jesus Christ, and the communion the gift of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Go in peace. The peace of the Lord be with you all. Amen. And also with your spirit.